1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is ION Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus.
0: There are nearly 20 million million military military veterans veterans in in the the US. U.S.
1: Each week, we focus on their stories.
2: Powered by ConnectingVets.com.
1: This this is CBS
2: Ion Veterans.
3: Veterans. Eye on Veterans.
2: Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Ion Veterans is a weekly program focused on the men and women who have served our nation in uniform and their families. We're powered by ConnectingVets.com. Always a great place to find military news, veteran news, resources, and stories about the veteran lifestyle. This hour, we'll hear some epic advice about finding a job. Those that start their job
3: search with a focus on who, who being what are your personal strengths, your personal passions,
2: you're going to be successful 84% of the time. And we'll hear the epic story of one of World War II's greatest heroes.
4: To be a 26-year-old guy, to survive over 500 days of extraordinarily violent combat, to liberate Dachau and over... 38,000 people. was a huge deal. It's a beautiful story in American history, you
2: know. Now in our next segment, we'll talk about ways veterans can receive health care in this challenging coronavirus era. VA telehealth services are all about increasing access to care for veterans and helping to eliminate the need for patients to travel to the nearest VA facility for a variety of appointments. We're joined now by Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for the VA's Office of Connected Care, to share how veterans can use telehealth services and how these technologies will change their health care journey. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Evans.
5: It's great to be here, Phil.
2: First, wanted to talk about health care services that are available to veterans via telehealth.
5: He has been a leader in telehealth for many years, even before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, more than, last year, more than 900,000 veterans received a portion of their care through telehealth. We did more than a million video visits. And we deliver care across more than 50 clinical specialties. If you can think of the type of medicine, we probably deliver a part of that care uh, through telehealth, or at least we can deliver a part of that through telehealth.
2: Now, let's talk some of the specifics. I, I know I'm not going to get my appendix removed over the phone. But uh, what type of care, treatment, procedures um, can veterans look forward to using telehealth for?
5: Sure. Well, we do telehealth, and and veterans can access telehealth in multiple different settings. So at home, veterans can connect um, through a video visit um, or through um, a technology like a mobile application or a web application where they're able to transmit their vital signs and other health information back to us at, at the VA. Um, to help them manage their chronic conditions. Um, through a video visit, it's really just two-way communication um, between a patient and a provider, um, and that can start the conversation. But we also um, can deliver telehealth and do deliver telehealth in our clinics. So Veterans are able to come into our clinics, and they're able to connect with a specialist who is at a location somewhere else in the country, uh, At the, at uh, another one of our VA medical centers, uh, maybe the closest VA medical center, or maybe one all the way across the country. Uh, And that specialist uh, can see them on a two-way video connection, and can also do a full examination, listen to their heart and lungs using a digital stethoscope from halfway across the country, can look into the back of the eyes, look into the ear, look with a high-definition camera at dermatologic lesion, uh, skin rash for example. Uh, so we really can do a full set of healthcare using these connected technologies in our clinics.
2: Did I hear you right? A virtual stethoscope if you will.
5: That's right exactly. It's a it's a stethoscope that has a really long tube uh, between the ears of the of the provider who's putting it in their ears and a and the, the lungs of the patient, where we're listening to the lungs, that happens to be the internet, that long tube between the, the, the one end of the stethoscope and the other.
2: <laughs> and likewise, with looking into the eyes or, or, or doing that part of the traditional beginning of any physical appointment at a doctor's office, they do it through the lens of the camera on the phone? He just holds it up to his eye and then the doctor can, can look into it that way?
5: Uh, for, to do the full exam, that's usually done, that, that's typically done in our clinics. Um, so the patient would have come into one of the, our closest clinic, their community clinic, a VA clinic, um, and there is a, a, a special uh, tool that uh, we can use to take a high-definition picture of the back of the eye or, for example, look in the ear at the eardrum and take a high-definition picture, and then that picture is transmitted back to the physician on the other end who can view that picture, and frankly, sometimes it's seeing a better picture than they might've seen if they were trying to do the exam in
2: person. Okay, so that occurs by going to a remote clinic or going somewhere, but but at the same that, time, that, allows them to maybe not have to travel all the way to a VA facility, gotcha. All uh, right, let's talk a little bit about the increased demand with telehealth services and appointments. Um, I know with so many things we're seeing it's difficult to get in, it's difficult to get your appointment, whether it's filing for unemployment or filing for some sort of financial claim or mortgage assistance. Um, what is it like as far as being able to get the telehealth services from the VA right now?
5: Well, we've seen a, a tremendous increase in utilization of the telehealth services in the context of the current pandemic. Um at least an eightfold increase. We were seeing um, um, prior to the pandemic in late February, early March, around 1,500 to 2,000. We were doing around 1,500 to 2,000 video visits per day to patients in their homes, and now we're doing between 16 and 18,000 video visits a day across the country. So a significant increase. Veterans can connect, uh, can can check in with their VA healthcare team. Uh, they work with their their Doctors, their nurses, uh, the staff at their local uh, VA healthcare facility, who can help them get set up with a telehealth visit instead of a face-to-face visit, or even a telephone visit as well.
2: Nice, and not significant wait times for these, or we're not seeing so much crowding that 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 we need to plan a week or three weeks in advance.
5: No, no, they just need to contact their provider and um, and and can get that can get that scheduled um, in place of a face-to-face visit. In fact, many. Um, During the pandemic, many visits are starting out as a telehealth visit. It's the beginning of the conversation, which helps the patient and the provider decide, you know, for what things do, uh, does the patient need to come in and what things can be safely managed at home.
2: And I'd imagine simple tasks like prescription refills are certainly available via telehealth and probably a simple procedure to do. But what about something more complex like a mental health issue?
5: Certainly, yes, prescription refills, and those can just be done simply online on our portal. Um, um, we do millions of those uh, a month, actually. Um, but for mental health, uh, mental health is actually probably the specialty that is utilized the most um, for, from, with regard to telehealth. Uh, a video visit uh, is perfect for uh, a therapy visit with a psychologist, a great uh, way to connect uh, with a psychiatrist, to uh, uh, evaluate medication regimens or... or 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 plot the next steps forward. So we we find that mental health uh, is is actually one of the the best specialties to use in telehealth.
2: And I'd imagine maybe an unforeseen situation, but something that's kind of nice is the fact that you don't have to go anywhere. You can be in the comfort of your own home. And certainly, if you're experiencing something, what's better than just being on your own couch, wearing your own sweatpants, and not having to leave the house? Right.
5: Certainly, it's it's convenient. You don't have to deal with parking uh, for the drive time, the parking, getting into the clinic. uh, it certainly is convenient. I think that's really one of the big uh, advantages of telehealth is the convenience and how it can fit into um, into veterans' daily lives.
2: Right on, and before I let you go, I just wanted to ask also about uh, how we address the needs of those that live in rural areas or maybe those with limited access to technology or maybe not the robust 5G, uh, super fast internet. How can they receive this kind of care?
5: Well, we don't want to leave any veteran behind. We want all veterans to be able to access this kind of care we spend a lot of time prioritizing that. We have a program where for veterans who can't get access to Internet or the technology at home, but who need to regularly connect with us for, uh, to help them manage a chronic health condition where we can provide them a tablet to use, uh, an Internet-connected tablet to use at home. We have partnerships with cell service providers um, to make VA Video Connect available without charge um, on the individual's personal cell phones, so lots we're doing to try to make sure this is available to all.
2: Well, that's fascinating. Even helping them get a device that will allow them to connect. That's uh, ah, great news. Where do I learn more about this? If I just want to read more about this or explore it on the internet uh, with my own two eyes, uh, what's a good website? A great website
5: would be telehealth.va.gov.
2: Well, I really appreciate your time. Everything you're doing as we adjust to this weird new normal, and I think it's fair to say it's kind of weird. It's awfully nice, and in fact, even the convenience that we experience with telehealth, you and I are experiencing right now as I'm doing this from my home studio, and I hope somewhere that you are safe as well. Dr. Neil Evans, Chief Officer of the VA's Office of Connected Care. Really appreciate your time.
5: All right. Thanks, Phil. Great.
2: Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And we're going to talk about veteran transition now in this segment, and it's one of the most popular things we talk about here on the show. Our next guest is one of the nation's leading experts in transition for veterans. Matthew J. Lewis is a West Point man, retired lieutenant colonel, having spent more than 25 years in the world's greatest army and almost 20 years in the corporate world. But he's most noted right now for the book Mission Transition. It's a practical guide for veterans in transition and their employees. The website I read asks, would you rather have an 84% chance of success or only a 28% chance? Well, if you'd prefer a greater chance, it's time to read on the book, Mission Transition, Navigating the Opportunities and Obstacles to Your Post-Military Career. So I'm eager like you to find out more from the author, Matthew Lewis. How are you, sir?
3: Great, Phil. Thanks so much for that introduction. I appreciate it. Looking forward to sharing my book and what it gets into with your audience here.
2: Now, before we talk about transition, as the book lays it out, tell me about yours, Colonel, because like you don't exactly have the background of uh, of an army officer that's immediately, <laughs> you know, that immediately translates to the civilian world. That's right, Phil that's exactly right. You know, I, I fall into that less than fifteen
3: percent or so of the population that served in a combat capacity. Uh, myself, I was a, a tanker, so I. I rode on tanks uh, in armor units. And, you know, look around, you don't see too many tanks rolling down your street, which is probably <laughs> a good thing. But that also meant I had to find an entirely new way of being. And so, you know, I put together this guide. It's literally written in a field manual style that I know my, you know, former brothers and sisters would immediately take to. So it's, it's crawl walk on step one, two, three, uh, something I know that they'll appreciate and help them get from point A to point B.
2: You know, one of the first things I found, snooping through your website there, was um, three reasons why veterans struggle during the transition to the civilian workforce. Talk to me a little bit about that.
3: Well, uh, there's a number of reasons why folks uh, struggle. Uh, first, I'll point to what we call the civil-military gap. And so veterans coming out, what they don't appreciate is, to start off with some facts, less than one-half of 1% have served on active duty anytime any time post-9-11. And so folks really don't understand what they've been through, what they do. Uh, Let's put that in the guise of those leading the corporate world. Uh, The Wall Street Journal tells us that about 2.5% of those folks that are going to be interviewing for the jobs to to which they aspire uh, have no idea who they are, what they've done, what they can do as a veteran. So they face this huge gap they need to overcome. Uh, Second, uh, while they... Uh, You know, there's a ton that they bring in terms of soft skills, and in in many, uh, because less than 15 percent served in any sort of combat role, the majority, 85 percent, serve in fields, should they choose to leverage it, uh, accrue directly into organizations with particular skill sets, Uh, be it, you know, engineering, logistics, technology, healthcare. Uh, There's tons that are done in the military that would directly translate Two other things I'll highlight here. You you noted the the earlier uh, statistics there, the 84 uh, and 28%. This isn't me, I'm, I'm quoting from studies that uh, Richard Bowles talks about in his best-selling work, What Colors Your Parachute? He's shown over time, uh, over decades, that those that start their job search with a focus on who, who being what are your personal strengths, your personal passions, who you are as a person, what gets you out of bed. If you focus there, you're going to be successful 84% of the time. If you start with what, meaning putting what you've done into a skills translator, much as the the military does as part of its TAP program, transition assistance program, you're going only going to be successful 28%.
2: I noticed also uh, under the resources part of your website there, uh, it had mentioned some things about skills translation. When looking at our skills translation, I thought it was interesting. You say don't necessarily look to translate what you did in the military directly, but kind of redefine yourself?
3: Yes. To the point of, of translation, uh, one of those resources there is, is a thesaurus. Uh, and you know again, I'll harken back to the civil military divide. Folks don't understand what you've done. And those coming out, if you only use the three-letter acronyms that you've come to use on an everyday basis in the military, that's going to further confuse them. And, you know, these folks on the civilian side, they, frankly, they don't have the time uh, to sit and, you know, educate themselves on what all those three-letter acronyms mean. Uh, translation is critical, and there's a number of exercises I walk through in the book on how to, to do that, and plenty of resources, as you found on my website, uh, to help you in doing so.
2: Uh, let's talk a little bit about transition timing. I noticed you had some thoughts on that. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people, I think it's a pitfall. Many fall into, you know, we think immediately you got to hit the ground running and you have to know where you're going and what time it is from day one. And, and I thought your thoughts on this were kind of interesting. Share those. Yeah.
3: So again, transition is frankly, it's, it's a year, multi-year-long affair. Uh, I mean, you talk to veterans and some that have been out literally years would tell you they're still going through their own transition. Begin to reach out, document your network, uh, exercise that network, and begin to find those opportunities that are, are going to result in whatever success means for you in your following career.
2: Mm, and you said a very important word there, network. Share with me a little bit about your thoughts on networking. All of us
3: that, that live in the real world, I'll call it, uh, you know, networking is how the world works. It's how uh, the world evolves. Businesses is uh, dependent on relationships, and networking is a, the key thing to enable those relationships. And the, the difficulty is, uh, for most folks coming from the military, uh, networking tends to take on or have a bit of a negative connotation. Uh, People in the military uh, tend to view it as, uh, you know, kissing butts, kissing rear ends, getting ahead,
2: uh,
3: (laughs) perhaps unjustifiably. Well, uh, you know, networking, the reality is networking in the real world is a process by which both individuals participating in the conversation benefit. It's not a one-way street. And so it's uh, used in its proper context. It's uh, positive for both ends and essential Uh, for making progress in whatever endeavor you're choosing out to, to excel in.
2: Do you find that when you receive a message like on LinkedIn, or if you receive somebody that's just, you know, wanting to reach out, possibly look at working in your field, in your area, is that a wise chess move on the board for anybody from enlisted all the way through officer, like just reach out to somebody that you see has service in their background and ask for the door to be cracked open just a couple inches?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple points on that. First, you know, networking it needs to be exercised. Would we'll all say both up and down the chain. Uh, I, I consciously network with individuals that are senior than me. I also network with individuals working for me or potentially working for me. Uh, I, to the point of uh, helping out individuals. Uh, absolutely, it, it, part of networking this day and age is social media. And there's platforms like LinkedIn and others like them, LinkedIn being the most prominent. And, oh, by the way, uh, will afford you a, a year's worth of uh, premium service if you go online and sign up. Uh, understand that coming into the real world, you as a networker don't have a, a ton to offer in a reciprocal relationship. And that's fine. Those that have been there, especially former veterans, understand that and almost always are willing to help someone coming out of the military. In fact, let me just hammer this point, the importance of what I call tribe. Literally hundreds of thousands of blood brothers and sisters awaiting you on the other side to help you cross this transform and set you up for success. You owe it to yourself, your families, and your future employer to take advantage of that. And so networking via via social media or any other channel is absolutely essential to your successful transition.
2: Well, the book is chock full of all kinds of things that can be helpful for both the enlisted and the officer making the big leap from uh, the mighty military into the weird civilian world, (laughs) and it doesn't always follow the rules we think it does, which is why I'm really glad you put a lot of this down. In Mission Transition, Navigating the Opportunities and Obstacles to Your Post-Military Career, we've mentioned it a couple times, but tell me about the website and where I can read up a little bit more on this book and your thoughts on a variety of topics.
3: Yeah, sure, Phil. Again, I appreciate the opportunity here. best way for your listeners to contact me is via my website, MatthewJLewis.com. Lewis, as in Saint Louis, and they can find me at Matt at MatthewJLewis.com. And
2: uh, again, you can find out more in Mission Transition. Author Matthew J. Lewis. Thank you so much for your time, Colonel.
3: Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. And good luck to all those veterans out there. I look forward to helping you. out
2: And we'll be back with more on CBS Ion Veterans right after this. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and for the rest of this hour, we're going to talk about the book, The Liberator, by Alex Kershaw. The Liberator traces the remarkable battlefield journey of U.S. Army officer Felix Sparks through the Allied liberation of Europe. Colonel Sparks and his men fought for over 500 bloody days, from the beaches of Sicily through the mountains of Italy and France, and ultimately enduring a bitter winter and combat against diehard SS fighters. Miraculously, he survived a long, bloody march across Europe and Sparks was selected to lead a final charge into Bavaria, where he and his men experienced some of the most intense street fighting of the war. And when he finally arrived at the gates of Dachau, Sparks confronted scenes that robbed the mind of reason and put his humanity to the test. Now this epic story of the Men of the 45th Infantry is being adapted into an animated series on Netflix. And here to talk to us about it is the author, Mr. Alex Kershaw. Alex, how you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Very good. Very good. And as, you know, I heard in the intro there to the book, just a spellbinding story. Tell me some of your favorite moments from this book.
4: Um, well, I love the uh, moment when Felix Sparks first goes into really serious combat against the Germans. Um, he was... um He fought all the way through the liberation of Europe, and he started off as a captain in E-Company of the 157th Infantry Regiment, the Thunderbird Division, in Sicily in July of 1943. And then he was in the Salerno invasion in September 1943, and then he was at Anzio, that's his third D-Day, if you like, in January 1944. And he fought very, very, very hard with his infantry company, at Anzio. And unfortunately, when Hitler tried to throw the allies out of Italy at Anzio and really came very close indeed, Sparks' unit was was right in the way. And um, he lost, apart from one other guy, imagine this, over 10 days, he lost 198 guys out of 200 captured, killed or wounded. And miraculously, he survived. But um, as he told me just before he died, he he said it was really hard to come back from that, that it was heartbreaking, it was tragic, it was a, it was a sort of devastating loss that he, he just didn't recover from. Anyway, he carried fighting, he carried on fighting, and you know, he's into his fourth D-Day, his fourth amphibious invasion. Imagine that was Southern France in the summer of 1944. And then finally, almost 75 years ago to the day, he is the commanding officer of the American unit that was first into Dachau concentration camp. And Dachau was perhaps the most symbolic of all the concentration camps in the Third Reich, over a thousand concentration camps, because it was the first one. Within 60 days of Adolf Hitler coming to power in 1933 and the Third Reich beginning, they created Dachau which is a, a camp where they placed all their political enemies. So to be the American officer, to be a twenty six year old guy who'd grown up in the height of the depression, had rode the rails across America for a couple of years to try and feed himself, to have risen through the ranks, to have survived over five hundred days of extraordinarily violent combat, and then have the great privilege and honor, if you like, to be to be leading the charge to liberate uh, the dachau and over thirty-eight thousand people 53 different nationalities almost 75 years ago to the day on the 29th of april 1945 was it was a huge deal it's a it's a beautiful story in american history you know
2: i think it's interesting also that we're speaking on this very week in 2020 yeah. because we celebrate the anniversary of the liberation of dachau
4: yeah absolutely yeah we're um You know, I I serve on the Board of Directors for the Friends of the World War II Memorial, that beautiful memorial in D.C., not far from where you're sitting right now. And um, for almost a year, we've been celebrating the 75th anniversary of key events at the end of World War II. And, you know, we're in a very climactic stage of the war. 75 years ago, we've, we've liberated Buchenwald. Um, A couple of days ago, the Americans linked up the Russians on the Elbe. Uh, We're now heading down towards Munich, and Dachau is liberated on the 29th of April. And um, we're looking at the VE Day on the 7th, on the German surrender is the 7th of May, and then the 8th of May is Victory in Europe Day. So we've really only got a couple of weeks now, and we're, Celebrating these immense events in, in world history, the, the successful liberation by allied forces of, of Western Europe, it was a, a huge deal. The destruction of Nazism, the liberation of the POW camps, of the concentration camps, of the death camps, and uh, we're right at the end of that story of great sacrifice and heroism where we defeated already the greatest evil of modern times.
2: Now, as the story goes, Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks was the commander of the regiment known as the Thunderbirds, um, and he went on to become a brigadier general. You got a chance to speak with the man. Tell me what he was like, and tell me a little bit about his life.
4: He was uh, born in uh, in Texas. He grew up in a mining town in Arizona and uh, joined the Army in the late 30s because he didn't have any money. I mean, literally, he was homeless in San Francisco, and an Army recruiter walked by, and he the recruiter said, hey, you want to join the Army? And Sparks was like, no way, I'm not joining the Army. Then he thought about it. Well, I could do with like two or three meals a day and a, and a, and a warm bed and a, and a roof over my head. So he literally joined the Army because he was so desperate. It was at college when he was called up after, after Pearl Harbor. And then he became a, an infantry officer and um, served with, the, with a really fantastic uh, combat division, the 45th Infantry Division. Mainly drawn from like Oklahoma, Colorado, mm-hmm. and had unbelievably the largest number of Native Americans in its ranks. So, over fifteen hundred Native Americans, Braves, absolutely served in the Thunderbird Division.
2: Did he at all talk about life after the war? I know that we seemingly look at a lot of our war fighters today, and you know we love them. We want them to heal. We want them to get over these invisible wounds of war. Nobody probably had it worse than the men who 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 fought through the conditions of World War II. I mean, that was just brutal, and technology was, so, you know, lower, yeah. that, you know, death was handed to you on a stick every couple minutes in the most brutal fashion. Did yeah. he ever speak of life after the military and how he coped, how he dealt with those losses?
4: He did speak about it, yeah, and he was, when I when I spoke to him a few months before he died, he was... He's still very upset. I mean, he was close to tears a couple of times. He was still very angry about some of the decisions that had been made while he was in combat. He didn't have a lot of respect for his several of his superiors. They thought they, they wasted a lot of young men's lives. Um, and I think that he... I don't think any of those real wounds had been healed. I think that they'd been kind of, like, covered up. He was like a lot of those... I mean, a lot of them. It's not a cliche, either, to say that they... They went through hell, they survived, they were just grateful to be alive, they were full of survivor's guilt, they were traumatized, and they came back and they just, they never shared their experiences with their wives or their families, because that would have been to poison that beauty, if you like, to to, to be able to have to tell the people you love most who you've become and what was done to you, but that was not something they wanted to do, they wanted to hide that and keep that very private. so they became kind of workaholics and they, they just glad like hell to be alive. They knew they were extremely lucky, especially those who'd been really in, in the thick of it, like Sparks. And they worked really hard and they built modern America and they brought up families. And then I think in the 1980s when they started to retire and the 70s and 80s when they started to really retire in large numbers, that's when you got the phenomenon of the reunion happening and that's when guys like Sparks, for example, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s started to organize reunions for his regiment, and that's when guys came out of the woodwork they got together 40 50 years after the event and the wives and the kids would sit in one corner uh, of the the ballroom at the holiday inn and all the veterans would sit in the other corner and they'd get drunk and they'd talk and they'd cry and they'd share their stories and they'd go through that kind of late retirement therapy That was so important to to actually be able to finally sit down with guys that understood what had been done to them, uh, because no one else could.
2: And that right there is an interesting comparison between the World War II generation and how the modern American warfighter has dealt with life after combat. We'll be back with more incredible stories from the book The Liberator when CBS' Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now we'll come back to our interview with author and historian Alex Kershaw about his best-selling book, The Liberator, and how it will be turned into an animated series on Netflix. During our conversation, we talked about the epic story behind Army Colonel Felix Sparks, who fiercely led the famed 45th Infantry, known as the Thunderbirds, into the heart of Nazi Germany. He and his men survived multiple amphibious assaults survived battles like Salerno and Anzio, and eventually would bring down the Nazis and liberate the concentration camp known as Dachau. In this next part of the interview, we'll discuss the colossal importance of liberating the camps like Dachau, and reflect on a shocking statistic, that during the summer of 1944, the Nazis killed 500,000 Hungarian Jews.
4: That's one human being every two seconds that's what we defeated. We we defeated virulent racism, white nationalism, racism, fascism, a military dictatorship that had no value for human life, that murdered, pillaged, and destroyed entire European civilizations and cultures, and if they'd been given another year or two, would have wiped out every single Jew in Europe. So... It was a monstrous evil, but it was a racist, fascist, white nationalist regime. And that's what they defeated. And we should not forget that that, that is what the enemy was, it was. And then the lessons are that Americans went out and they laid, out, laid down their lives and they fought very, very hard. And over 150,000 of them were killed, mostly working class Americans in Europe, to liberate that beautiful continent because they were fighting against the evil of racism, the pure evil of racism. Hitler committed suicide almost 75 years ago to the hour, as I'm speaking right now. And the last thing he said was to warn, the last thing he wrote down was to warn the German people about the evil of the Jews. An absolutely obsessive, psychopathic, obviously, anti-Semite. The only thing that was consistent throughout that madman's tenure was this hatred of the Jews. Um, and I think that we, we tend to forget 75 years later when we talk about things like, oh, they were the best generation, they were, there was something really special about them. We tend to forget that what they did was they defeated that. And that, that threat of racism, that human virus
2: So well said. And, you know, we hear people, uh, you know, on the news medias and the political pundits, you know, throw around this term like, oh, you're a nationalist or you're the flames of nationalism are being fanned. when you just did the description there of Hitler and his regime, um, you didn't stutter like that form of nationalism and that form of racism is a true hatred. And we shouldn't use the word nationalism lightly.
4: Yeah, no, it's a big it's a big difference between being patriotic and being nationalistic. I mean, there's a big difference between loving your country and then loving your country and hating others. <laughs> we don't need to go to the step of hatred for others to feel good about ourselves. But this ties into a point that is important. So I interviewed a guy that survived the Holocaust um, and he was in Toronto and he was an extraordinary man. And I asked him, he said, it became a, a a psychiatrist, so he understands the human psyche. And I said to him, why the hell do you think that so many people loved Adolf Hitler? How could this failed artist, this pathetic specimen of a human being, so disgustingly inadequate in so many ways, how could he do so much destruction? How could the Germans have elected him and followed him almost to the very, very bitter end, right to the last moment they were fighting for him? How, how How does that happen? Um, And he said to me, you know what, for someone to be loved, and this is what Hitler worked out, and this is what um, unethical leaders work out, and I don't have to mention names, this is what people who manipulate stupid people work out pretty quickly. But they work out that to be loved, for people to adore them, then they have to have someone to hate. So the more that Hitler pointed and directed people's emotions towards hatred of an enemy, The enemy within was the Jew. The Jew was the person to hate. And the more they hated the vermin, the Jews in Europe, the more they would love Hitler. So it's a sort of strange dynamic. But if you look at the world right now, it works. (laughs) You know, it's an interesting
2: comparison there. And it's an interesting observation you make that some of those nuances are timeless. I mean, the crazy hate-fueled playbook that... Hitler ran is exactly what's being run by Al Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban and all the various forms of terrorism and evil that we fight against even today.
4: Yeah, and the, you know, the, the way that the way that you start that process is by making people treat other human beings as other other to them. When you go to Dachau, it's just outside Munich and there were rail tracks there on the 29th of April 1945. Barks came to the outskirts of Dachau with his men, and they found what was called a death train. There's over 2,000 men, women, and children lying there dead on a train. They, they were going to take these these um, victims of the Holocaust and the, and the Nazi regime into Dachau, but the, the guards fled and they, left, they just left them on the train. There were 2,000 dead people on this train.
2: And though it's really difficult to hear, uh, you know, it underscores all the more reason why The Liberator is important. And, you know, I'm really glad that you were able to put this down and document this because it's something that we should never forget. Now, you've put this all in the words of the book, The Liberator, but it's not just words anymore. In fact, it's been picked up and it is in production to become an animated feature on Netflix. Tell me about that.
4: Uh, yeah, it's in production right now. I think they're actually in post-production, and it's going to be—I think it's next May of 2021. And it's a four-hour story of of, of the Liberator adaptation. So they're using a, a lot of new technology to to create a completely new feel to how you dramatize anything. Basically, I mean, it's going to be a combination of live action and then really beautiful animation. So you'll you'll be able to really have really big epic battle scenes which will mostly be animated but then when you look at the actual characters on the screen uh, you'll see you'll see their human features because a lot of it's been filmed in studios on a stage with a green screen behind you know
1: so it's oh, great
4: wow. it's a really sort of cutting edge truly i mean i'm not being cliche it's completely cutting edge technology to animate the story so i'm i'm very excited about it because the most important thing, reason why I'm excited about it is, apart from the fact that I think a lot of people are going to get to know who Felix Sparks was, and I think a lot of people are going to get to know um, what, how amazing his unit were. Um, I'm, I'm, most of all, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that that greatest generation to come right back to what we were talking about is going to be celebrated by and discovered by another generation, because I'm hoping that you know, 17, 18, I don't know, 12-year-olds are going to be able to watch this on on Netflix, and they're going to go, wow, you know what? Oh, dude, really rocks. It's awesome.
2: And that's where we'll leave it for this week. You can find The Liberator everywhere you find books, and we'll look forward to seeing it in animated form on Netflix as soon as it comes out. You can find this episode, as well as my extended full-length interview with author Alex Kershaw on ConnectingVets.com in the audio section. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and I'll be back next week with more great stories from those who serve on CBS Eye on Veterans.
1: Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by. University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans
0: ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.
1: The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.